Sports Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now it's time for Mac to Mac. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, season two of Holding Court, everyone. It's a moment you've all been waiting for. I know that. And I've been waiting for this for a long time because there's no other way that I could possibly kick off season two of my podcast than with the one and only Johnny Mac, my big brother, John McEnroe, finally deciding to join me on Holding Court. And uh, I mean, what better way, big bro, than to kick off season two than with an appearance by you? Come on. I mean, you know, first of all, it's awesome to be on the show. And, uh, you know, I felt like in season one, I was like, where's Waldo? You know, where's Johnny <laughs> Mac? Couldn't find me. But, uh, you know, I, I had to pay my dues, I guess. I thought I could maybe make it in season one. But uh, you just you got to be patient. You know, that's not necessarily one of my strongest points on or off the court. I've gotten better, but uh, thrilled to be here. Holding court with my bro. Well, listen, I mean, we're going to do this uh, about once a month, and uh, I'm going to be releasing uh, every Thursday. In fact, this week, week number one, Kristen Chenoweth, the big Broadway star. That will be my first guest uh, for season two. And every Tuesday, I'll be doing sort of a recap of what's going on in the world of tennis. Uh, we've also got some tennis guests lined up as well, John, for season two. Andy Roddick, who you know well, James Blake, Andrea Yeager. And uh, I know you know a lot about her story, so we'll we'll sprinkle those in as well. And uh, Gavin Rossdale, the lead singer of Bush Seal, who uh, is like obsessed with tennis. So we got some nice uh, guests lined up for season two, but we got to kick things off, John, because uh, it was just a great weekend of tennis here, particularly on the men's side. And old Mr. Nadal at 34. Uh, manages to keep on doing it despite looking a little shaky at times in Barcelona. Lost a couple of sets early in the tournament, but comes uh, away with number title number 12 in Barcelona, taking out Sitsipas in just an epic three-set final. Three hours and 38 minutes for Rafa to win that title for the 12th. He's never lost, by the way, in a final in Barcelona. Well, these are, you know, six stats you come up with and, and the results he's had over the years, not just at the French where he's won 13 or is it I have lost track after a dozen. <laughs> and then every other place you turn, like Barcelona, he's 12-0 and 0 and he won Monte Carlo a dozen times and you could go on and on. So when he's challenged on, on that surface, like he was early in the event, you're like, what's wrong with Rafa? How did he lose in Monte Carlo? I mean, it's unheard of. So he seemed to be getting better and better, as we've seen in the past, once he gets going. I mean, it's amazing that he needs to build his confidence, even now at 34. It just shows you how dedicated he is and him understanding the process and that you can't assume anything, no matter how great you are, uh, that you're going to go out there and just blow someone away. But I, I've got to say, of, of all the guys I've seen on the clay court, uh, Clay course the first few weeks, Sissy Pass looks the best to me. A, a bit surprised that he's really looked comfortable there and dominated. But the other great part to see, especially towards the end of the term, was to see the fans, mm. more and more fans there, and some energy 
for these players because I was watching the ladies in Stuttgart. They're playing indoors. There's no one there. And then you trans, you go over to Barcelona and suddenly you see some passion from the players, obviously, but also off the court, which is huge. And it just makes for a better event all around. So slowly but surely, we're seeing that happen more and more, and thank God for that. Yeah, and, and, and we're all waiting uh, with bated breath, you and I at ESPN, to see what's going to happen uh, with the coverage of Wimbledon. Obviously, we were at the U.S. Open last year, which uh, you talked about quite a bit, which is kind of bizarre, you know, being there, especially in the late night, as we do a lot of the matches at night, and just no energy whatsoever. I, I know I felt, I mean, you and I, when we leave at, late at night, you know, it's always, we try to get to our car quick, but as you go through the crowd, and, you know, you feel the buzz of the crowd, and the energy from the New York crowd, and it was sort of surreal this past year, leaving, you know, late at night, the way we did, like literally walking by ourselves, you know, to get in our car in the parking lot at midnight, or one in the morning, whenever it was. So, uh, I mean, could you, I mean, we can imagine it because it happened, but as you said, finally seeing the fans back makes just a monumental difference, doesn't it? Well, there's no question about it. I mean, if you took the 25 biggest matches that I have ever played in, the crowd was involved in probably 24 of the 25. It lifted either myself or my opponent up, and it was just... at. Tennis, to me, is one of the sports most affected by this. You only got one person out there, and, you know, they can hide things better in basketball and football. They're blaring in all types of things, fan noise, fake noise, and there were some fans there towards the end in some of the stadiums. But when you got no one in a stadium in a a tennis match, I I really think it it, it hurts the overall quality of the product. So. I understand why they needed to get back out there. I mean, I'm not the one making that decision. It's a, it's a tough one to make. This, we weren't even in the same suite. We weren't even calling right. the match from the same room. That's how bizarre it was. And then the only people you would see were other players that were watching the people that were on center court. So to say it was bizarre would be an understatement. To see what the players have had to do going through these quarantines in Australia where everyone was so pumped up to see – maybe a full house and then they said well maybe we can do half and then the next thing you know after five days no one's there for five days and I think you notice particularly with like a guy like team who came from two sets to love down against Kyrgios in a match where the crowd was just going crazy all of a sudden he goes and plays Dimitrov and no one's there and he just looked like he didn't he mailed it in you know and you were like what how did that happen and I think there's a guy that it's really affected it to me in a negative way. Cause I think the effort he puts in to you know, be as good as he is, he needs to feed off energy sometimes. And he's been doing that for so long that he just looks like someone's put a pin in the balloon and he doesn't have it right now. So that it's going to be important for him. I, I believe that to see fans in these next couple of events, I don't know what's going to happen when they, they play in Rome or when they play in Madrid or, what happens in Geneva? How many fans will be there when Roger makes his return? And what's happening at the French? We still haven't heard. So things are still up in the air. Uh, we're heading in the right direction. And boy, oh boy, uh, I hope it's going to be all 
over with in terms of just wondering about crowds as soon as possible. I wanted to ask you about Dominic Team because, you know, you and I know him pretty well. Jay Carl, our buddy at the John McEnroe Tennis Academy, who takes care of us, you know, gets our courts, makes sure we got our balls and our waters. Well, he took care of Dominic Team as well as some other players as well. But when he would come to the U.S. Open, he'd always practice right there in court number one, the Johnny Mac court indoors. And, you know, to see him even a week before the U.S. Open, I mean, the type of intensity he brings to the practice court I feel like now John that team after winning the open and maybe the fans has a the lack of fans has had a lot to do with it that he sort of lost his edge and like maybe his motivation and desire reminds me a little bit of another guy we know well Jim Courier who you know kind of pushed the envelope physically and he always felt like he had to grind it out and train so hard he never really found that balance you know the way these all-time greats now in Nadal and Djokovic and Federer obviously have sort of found that balance of not pushing themselves too much in certain tournaments or on the practice court but I feel like team is struggling a little bit with that I thought he was going to have another huge year this year I mean he still could of course if he gets it together on the clay and, and could somehow win the French but to me, that I feel like that's what's holding him back right now. Is like, okay, I won the Open. Like you said, the pin has been popped. And now how does he find that ability to still play at a high level? Maybe why not, while not killing himself on the practice court? Yeah, well, I think that's a great analogy with Jim Courier. He had that 18-month, uh, 24, two years where he was arguably the best player in the world, and he pulled off four majors. So I think team would be happy if he got the four at this stage, but right now, uh, he's got to find that fine line. You know, he trains extremely hard and he pushes himself to the limit. And I think there's times where, you know, it was one of the few courses I took at Stanford, diminishing return. It was an right. economics course right. and it was and part of it was the law of diminishing returns. And there is a point where you can go too hard and you end up hurting yourself. Now I never had that issue. Um, uh, but uh, there were other players that did, and Courier was definitely one of them. And I think Team's right there right now. And he's, you know, I think he's been working and trying to find a way to deal with this. But I really think that he's been one of the most players affected by this whole mm -hmm. pandemic. Uh, initially, it, it, it was there on a silver platter for him because Djokovic got defaulted, Nadal, Federer didn't play. So it was like, okay, here's Team's time. He paid his dues. And I think that's really a big reason why he won it. But once he did do that, I think, like you said, all of a sudden he's just gone completely flat. And so he's got to rethink his strategy the next couple of years because, you know, he's 27 or 28 and he doesn't want to burn out. And uh, he's in danger of doing that. So he's got to be very careful right now. I want to ask you actually because I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Well, of course, I never know what to expect, what you're going to discuss, what you're going to bring up. But I wanted I wanted to ask you because somebody sent me recently, like a, on YouTube, uh, it was like an hour and a half show. The great Bud Collins uh, was was uh, the host, and apparently he followed you around. I never even saw this thing until recently in your first year at Stanford. Going back to Stanford, there's all this um, unbelievable video of you playing yeah. at Stanford, playing, I think, you know, a match point down against Elliot Telcher, who turned out to be a great pro as well. He was playing number one at UCLA. You hit this unreal backhand pass on the run, match point down. Do you remember that? It was 6-2-5-3. I, I do remember in. that. You know, we, 
That was the closest our team came to losing a match. We won that 5-4, and I was down match points. So uh, we definitely stole that one away, playing away. But that that was exciting. But, you know, originally it wasn't about me. It was about more like generally like younger players in mm -hmm. college tennis. And because I made that breakthrough at Wimbledon in 77, this French filmmaker obviously started started focusing a lot more on me because I, it was also that year where I played Davis Cup uh, singles for the first time in the finals in Palm Springs in 1978. And then I was at Stanford uh, uh, the year earlier in the year until May of 78. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great move for me as it turned out, even though I got into the semis of Wimbledon in 77 and most people are telling me to turn pro. Right to uh experience college you know and i would strongly we, we always do this but i would strongly advocate any youngsters that are listening to your podcast they've got to be in the millions by now the, <laughs> amount of the, number, the numbers it. are growing are you kidding the numbers are growing. astronomical right. numbers right. uh we got to get not only do we have to get more kids playing tennis but then right. we have to help them make the right decisions to be the best people they can be the best person they can be to make get the most out of it and hopefully as my stated goal has been for 10 years with at the John McEnroe Tennis Academy and the uh, charity that you're so involved with and you're my right-hand man there to get someone to come from New York City, the inner city, even better, and win a U.S. Open for for themselves and for us would be just, it would uh, make it all worthwhile. It would come full circle from two kids like us growing up in Queens. Two kids from Queens. That's right. Well, I, you know, I, it's funny because I, I obviously mentioned to people all the time that when you went to Stanford, you were already a Wimbledon semifinalist, you know, when you came through the qualies and then you lost to Connors and you, I think you were already even in the top 30 in the world because you, you did really well in the, that summer. 21 well. in the world. 21. When, yeah. And so I, I tell people, uh, well, the reason you went to college is because our mom, um, rest in peace, Kay McEnroe, basically said to you, John, you're going to college for a year. You have to go. So if you explain to me if that's really entirely true. Well, I don't remember that. So, um, you know, you were, you were little then. So yes. uh, you might have heard an old, not an old wives' tale. That's an old mom's <laughs> tale. Right. Um, right. So um, I think that she was thinking that uh, she wanted to be the one to be the pragmatist, you know, the one that would say, what happens if you broke your leg or your arm and you want, you end up being a lawyer or a doctor like our other brother is. So, um, she was trying to be practical and, and give us, give me some solid advice. My dad was sort of, you know, we truthfully, none of us really knew what to do, mm -hmm. but ultimately I didn't feel that I was quite ready to go out on the tour. I wanted to experience what it would be like to go to college and I didn't think that it would hurt my career. And I think at, as, as it turned out that it helped it, which was like a win-win because not only did I chance to go to Stanford for a year and experience that, but I also had a chance to, um, uh, to play it as part of a team and, and part of a team that went undefeated and, and sort of in, enjoy just being on a campus for a year. And that allowed me mentally the time because I knew – uh, that I was going to turn pro after, pretty quickly, that I was going to turn pro after one year. Obviously, I wanted to try to win the NCAAs, but I was thinking and preparing for what it would be like, the grind of it. I mean, it's an incredible grind, don't get me wrong, but you're, you're on the road 40 weeks a year, 
you're in different parts of the world, which in some ways are exciting, but in a lot of cases, we end up seeing the tennis court, the hotel, and the airport. So we're not experiencing some of what we could be experiencing. So it's just the challenge of getting ready for this. And that really helped me, as it turned out, when I turned professional. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. And, and in those days when you were in college, I mean, the level of play in college was exceptionally high, probably more so than it is certainly today. Although in recent years, we've seen more players now start to develop. You know, obviously John Isner is the obvious one, Kevin Anderson. You know, you've got more guys. James Blake went for a couple of years. Um, but you've got more players that are spending a little bit more time in college. If, if you, if you if, if, let's say we get a kid at our, at our academy – that comes at 17, that's, you know, say one of the top juniors in the world. I mean, obviously, I think if they're not quite at the top, we would both for sure say you got to go to college. But right now, you know, let's say you get someone who's, you know, competing in the junior slams, you know, right there, maybe could win one. What, what, is, that a, is that a case where you sort of take it case by case based on the individual? Or would you say, you know, now, especially as the players are playing so much longer – and more successfully into their 30s and late 30s, is it you think that college experience might be even more important now than it's been, say, in the last 15 years? Yeah, I think, I think that's dead on. I think 99% of the kids that would be in that position should go to college at least for a couple of years. We talk about how expensive it is for players ranked below 150 in the world. So right. think about that. If you're 160, 70, and, and downward, you're not making much money. You're traveling. You're, if you hire a coach, I won't get and bore people with the details, but it's costly and you're going all around the world. So you're not making much. There's probably a bunch of pros at our academy that are making in excess of some of the players are coming out with more money than some of the players that are out there on the tour trying to make it big. Mm-hmm. So you have the security. Not only do you have a chance to grow up as a, as a, go from a boy to a man or a young girl to a woman, you have an opportunity to experience something that you look forward to when you're growing up, a college experience and being around people your old age and, and trying to learn about different things at school. So there's an incredible advantage there. And, and you, you just mentioned something that's really important, I, I think, and that is that players these days, girls and guys, peak at a much later age and can mm-hmm. play much longer. There's more, they have much more understanding of how to, to, to 
rejuvenate, to keep the body fresh, to, uh, to get themselves in a position, a peak position more often, as often as possible as they get later. And a lot of these players, which was pretty unheard of, are playing well into their 30. Look at Nadal. You just, we just talked about him. He's almost 35. Djokovic, almost 34. Roger, of all people, is about going to be 40. Serena. You can go on and on with these stories. So why not try to peak? To me, ideally, you want to peak from 22 to 35 would be the ages, or 22 to 32, as opposed to when I was coming up way back when in the dark ages, you know, 18 to 28. If you made it to 30, people thought that was great. Uh, so uh, this, this, this change is actually, I think it's, it, it's potentially a really good thing for the sport because then you'd have a lot more kids coming out of college that were quality players. Mm-hmm. Look at all the, the, the kids in other sports, basketball, football, two obvious examples where these kids come in from college and they make a serious impact. They're right into the starting lineup um, of an NFL or an NBA team in a lot of cases, or they're certainly an important part of it. So this allows young kids to get the confidence that they can handle what they're about to embark upon and, and to me, be more mature and be able to deal with the ups and downs better. Yeah, and not have the financial pressure, obviously, as you noted, of the players, you know, breaking onto the tour those first few years. Even the ones that are really good, you know, end up being great players like a Sitsipas. I mean, he spent a couple of years playing in the, in the Challengers and Futures as well. Now, I got to ask you about, well, look, we've already done 20 minutes. I told you 20 to 25. So as you can see, John, the podcast format suits you just fine. Okay, no problem. <laughs> we can do whatever the heck we want, which is the beauty of this uh, as we move forward. But I got I to ask you about Roger, just because obviously I get asked that all the time. He said he's going to play a couple clay court events, including the French Open. We, we assume we hope that's going to happen uh, a week later in, in May and into June. Uh, can, what do you expect from him? And I mean, obviously we know he's Roger and we know he's trying to gun, gun, get himself ready to make a run at Wimbledon. I don't personally think that he actually believes he could win the French, but I think he's looking at the French as a way to kind of play himself into condition, get himself some matches, and then try to make a push to, to make another big run at Wimbledon. Well, I think you're dead on again. I mean, remember about five years yet, and I was coaching Ranich at that time, uh, going into the Wimbledon run and the rest of that year. And he ended up beating Roger in the semis, which was a huge you know, step forward for him as one final in a major. And uh, Roger didn't play for six months after that, not a single match. He had surgery on the knee. And I thought then, I said, I don't, th-, and he hadn't won since the 2000, I believe. 12, uh, Wimbledon. That's right. Uh, so, you know, it'd been a number of years already. I didn't think he was ever going to win another one. So what he did was, you know, beyond phenomenal to me that he was able to come back and win three more, a couple, you know, Wimbledon, a couple Australians, uh, be able to have match points on Djokovic mm. a couple years ago at Wimbledon. So he's, he's an amazing, amazing player. I believe he's human. I think he's human. I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, the guy's going to be 40 years old. So, to me, you know, his shot is Wimbledon, no question. Um, the body can take it. Take it, it, it it's a little easier on the body there and more the, of a mind game, which I think helps him. So he's always going to be a threat there. But the other ones I can't see. And even Wimbledon, to me, is a, a long shot at this point. But, you know, he loves playing. So mm. the fact that he loves it so much is – the thing that I envy, you know, the most about him. That's one thing I, I, I wish I loved the game 
as much as he does on a day in and day out basis. It's, it's a phenomenal thing to watch. It's like saying, I've never seen a guy try harder than Rafael Nadal consistently mm-hmm. point in point out. That's a phenomenal quality. That's their greatest qualities. I think Rogers love for the game. Um, uh, you got Rafa who just gives it, you know, like every point's his last point. And then you got Djokovic, that determination, you know, that want, wants to be in the mix and be ex- treated the same way as also two other guys. It's propelled him to unbelievable greatness. So we've had this, you know, unbelievable 10, 15 years with these three guys that we're not going to see. You're going to see guys, Sissy Pass is going to win majors. I'm hopeful Medvedev's body holds up. If it does, he'll win majors for sure. Team might win a couple more. You got these young kids like Sinner. He's going to win some. Maybe one of the Canadians, Ali Usim, Shapovalov. But hopefully, dare I say, hopefully we get some Americans in the mix now because I'm looking at rankings right now, and the top-ranked American in the men's game is 30 in the world. That's Taylor Fritz. Nice, solid player, good kid, uh, really excellent player. But to be able to jump that and win majors, you know, it's been a long time. So, uh this has been a, a frustration for a lot of people in the States, including myself, because you, we're looking at rankings and we do it more carefully than most because we do TV, but also we're in the labor cup and we're looking like, where are guys that are, mm-hmm. all these guys are from Europe. It seems like, you know, it, it's unbelievable. We're like David versus Goliath every time we do that. <laughs> and so there's, uh, we got one guy, Schwartzman, he's, you know, he's five, five and he's our, you know, one guy that's 10 in the world. So um, it's unbelievable what's happened, but, you know, there's always hope and we just have to make the game more accessible. We're trying to do that at our, at our club at Randall's Island and, and raise money to get more kids the opportunity to play. And this is the key to turning this around and hopefully getting some players. You know, we see some hope. You know, I look at Sebastian Corder, Peter's kid. Yep phenomenal talent you know he's hopefully he'll keep progressing you know, i think he's got top 10 for sure potential i opelka i've been disappointed with recently i i'm like what is he doing you know mm-hmm. the guy's seven feet tall he should be you know more impactful than he's been recently maybe he's been affected negatively by the fact no one's there because uh, then you can hear him calling for his coach to get a, a whole plane reservation while the match is going on you're like Focus on the match, Riley, will you? I'm <laughs> um, happy to see Tiafo seems to be turning the corner in a positive way, even though he's only ranked 65 or 70. So there's guys out there, but we need to do better than this. Give me one guy, the young guys, John. You mentioned quite a few of them. Sinner, Oje Aliassim, even Musetti, the other Italian. What of those young guys? You throw Corda in there as well. Which one? Of, I'm not going to put Sitsipas in there because he's a little bit older, but just as like the kind of the 20 and under guys, who do you think wins a major first out of, the, of that crew? Sinner. Sinner. Okay, no hesitation there. I'm, a, I'm, I'm going with Sinner. You know, they got a good run going in Italy. They finally really got some belief in their players. Berrettini just won one in Belgrade. Um, so that's good. Fonini's been around a while. They're sort of pushing each other, and Sinner's the best of them all. So I like him. I like Ole Osim, too. Those yeah. two are the guys that have the, the biggest upside to me, those two guys. So um, they got, you know, they're still learning. It's exciting to watch them and see when they develop uh, a little bit more, and, and, and they are. And you got to give them time. You know, I'm, I'm not one that has tons of pay. I'm like, why? 
isn't he doing this now? And then you realize they're 20, 19 years old. They're still learning. So they're making some good progress. They're having to deal with these all-time, the three all-time greats. So that bums you out and hurts your confidence. But they've been doing a real nice job recently make, making the move forward. So uh, I like what I'm seeing from them. All right. I will see you uh, shortly when you make your way back to New York. And we'll do this again in about a month. This has been unbelievable, awesome. And this is uh, the only way that I could imagine kicking off season two with the one, the only, Johnny Mac. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.